0: We have been talking in recent weeks about the end, the end of time, the return of Christ. What does the Bible teach us? If, and if you are a guest this morning, this is a little bit different. We, you know, you don't hear preachers talk about these things very often. They can be very controversial. They can stir up division and fear, but I just don't think that's necessary. I think that the Word of God gives us a lot of foundation to operate on, that we don't have any reason to get weird and panicky and fearful and angry. I think that the scripture is there to give us a solid foundation to navigate the wind of change in the world and society and culture. And I think the reason that we know some things about what were to come in the world or what are to come is so that we can remain steadfast and focused on our Lord. You know, when we face trials of many, many kinds, we're never called to grow fearful and angry. We're called to remain steadfast, honoring God, living out the mission that he gave us. But sometimes the chaos of the times sweeps through and we get distracted from what the actual mission is. And we start getting focused on scary things. And today I'm going to talk about one of the most unpopular topics for preachers to talk about. We're going to talk about the Antichrist. What that means. What has gone on through the ages. What have people taught? Everybody take a deep breath. My heart behind this series is not to prove one particular theological theory or another. I'm a strong advocate of we don't know when Jesus will return. This is a fundamental fact of scripture. And when we start examining the scripture and all the theories about the end of time, there's a lot of different ideas out there. How many of you grew up in, a, in a, you grew up believing that the world would come to one world order and antichrist would rise to power for 7 years there would be a great tribulation at which Christ would return at the end and all those that didn't have the mark of the beast were going to be good to go Pretty much How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about Okay See, it's challenging. There's a lot of theories about there, and we don't know. But I want to talk about this in such a way that we can just settle and know that God provides for us and know that God has led us. But I'm going to talk about different theories and different thoughts and different approaches, not to prove to you one or the other. That's what's unique about preaching. Usually, I would stand up here and try and teach you fundamental sound doctrine from the Scripture. That's my job as a shepherd of the people, is to bring that. But today, I'm bringing that in such a way that we know what we can lay hold of as absolute truth and know what we just kind of go, well, God, (laughs) we trust you no matter what happens. Nothing, Nothing probably spikes more fear in Christians than a conversation about the Antichrist. Oh, my gosh. Do you know how many Antichrists there have been since Jesus left? A lot. And generation after generation after generation... Political figures, religious leaders have been accused of being the Antichrist. But where does this whole conversation even come from? Why do we think like this? Why do we talk like this? What's going on? We're going to look at the passages today and talk about it. And we're just going to talk about it. I'm not trying to prove any particular point, but just look at what the scripture says and where this conversation comes from. I want to remind us of a couple of things before I dive in. First of all, in difficult times, conversation about apocalyptic events increases. And we have just come through a season where that's no exception. Turns out Fauci wasn't the Antichrist after all. (laughs) You know, how much of that stuff do we hear, do we run into? Donald Trump wasn't the Antichrist. Joe Biden's not the Antichrist. Okay, Hitler wasn't, or maybe they were, maybe Hitler was in some way. John says in his letter, many have come. Okay, I'm going to go off the rails here. I better stay on track. Here's the other thing. Prophecy in scripture is difficult to interpret, but is given to us to strengthen our faith and remain faithful and steadfast no matter what happens. That is the purpose of prophecy. It's why Jesus told his disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem that they would remain steadfast when everything looked like it was about to end. The application of the end times doctrine would be to strengthen our faith, that our Lord will return and his people will resurrect and we will go on to eternal life. Those are facts that we teach of the scripture. The details of that are subjective. Okay, that's my approach and that's how I'll teach it. But we do not need to be afraid. It's not there for us to make predictions, necessarily, but to navigate it well. My last encouragement would be Acts 17, verse 11. I want to talk about the Bereans. Who were the Bereans? You know, it's funny when we talk about all kinds of church doctrine, you know, we we want to be Bereans. The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. What did the Bereans do? They are hearing these ideas, and rather than just assume that Paul was telling them the truth and readily grab hold of them and make them a part of their lives, they went to the Scripture to make sure that they weren't being deceived. Or that this understanding is as clear as Paul said it was. And so we would use that terminology today, be a Berean. Meaning what? Go to the scripture and see if what I'm telling you is true. But I also would encourage you that as you're browsing through these websites and hearing these things on the news and all the stuff that's influencing you about what to think or how to analyze things, be a Berean. Because our truth comes from the scripture, period. That's what we know is absolutely true. But all the theories of things, they come and they go. And we, I'm not dissing them. We are, you know, there's a scripture, and I guess I should have looked it up to, to prove it to you today, but it's the glory of God to, a, to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to seek it out. God wants us searching. He wants us being curious. He wants us wondering. But he doesn't want us going off the rails with unsound thinking or guesswork, or hopscotching around, or making Scripture say what it doesn't say. Here's the thing. When we're studying the Bible, we need to do a proper job of exegesis. We exegete out of the Scripture what it actually says. We don't get an idea in our head and then go to the Scripture and try and make it fit what I already think. I let my thinking be shaped by the Scripture, not the other way around. But we do that. So if you grew up with a particular kind of theology, I mean, we've got very diverse background of theology here. You grew up in whatever kind of church. Your parents were this. You didn't go to church. You had all, all kinds of ideas and backgrounds. But sooner or later, we have to stop and go, why do I believe what I believe? Am I going to be a Berean and, and go back and see the stuff that I learned? Is that actually true? Or is it, is it at least reasonable? I mean, I can see why there's all these different theories. It's confusing. It's challenging. So we need to keep seeking and not just assume. And when we do that, we remain steady in difficult times. Okay, Antichrist, let's go. This word Antichrist is only found by one author in the scripture, John. The same author that had the vision in Revelation, although he doesn't use it in the book of Revelation. The term Antichrist is found in the book of 1 John. We'll get there. The antichrist is just what it sounds like, against Christ, or in place of Christ, is what it means even in the original Greek. It's not hard to understand. I want to first start with what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-12. through So Christians have latched onto this label, antichrist, and began to apply it to some other areas of scripture. And you'll see that it is probably reasonable to do so, but... We'll have to examine. Let's start with 2 Thessalonians. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers. What's Paul saying here? Jesus is returning. This is what we're talking about right now. Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Can we get to the next slide? Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word. Can I just stop there at that phrase in the beginning of two? Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. And yet I feel like what's being pushed through media and internet and people looking to cash out on some of the panic is I really want to push my fear on you and make you scared so you read my material and get really worked up about it. And yet Paul's saying about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. In this particular case, we see what he's talking about, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Next one. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. All right, well, there's some rebellion between Paul's moment here and the return of Christ. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Wow, this is interesting. I've not heard this before. This is the first chronologically that I hear of this man of lawlessness that Paul's talking about. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, so this paints a picture that there's a man of lawlessness on his way. And he's going he's to do these things. There's a rebellion involved with that. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about this. Is Paul talking about one individual man of lawlessness? There's a rebellion that you could sit there and dissect all day, the idea of lawlessness. I wish I could talk for hours about this right now. Because there's just so much. But I don't want to go weeks and weeks and weeks talking about the Antichrist. I just think it's something we need to cover, and if you have interest in it further, keep investigating it, or talk to me about it. I'm happy to visit about it, but we can't cover all the detail now. But he would proclaim himself to be God. Now, this begins, so if I look at this and I say, okay, there's a man coming, it's just going to be one man, and he's going to be a man of lawlessness, and he's going to take a seat in the temple, I have several issues here, I have to now decide. There is no temple. There is no temple. Oh, wait, is there a temple? Well, I know the New Testament teaches that I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus is, Jesus is a temple, it also teaches. I know those things. There's no physical temple anymore. Rome destroyed it in 70 AD. So, if, so you see how the theories are going to start to come into play here. So some people say, if there's a man of lawlessness that's going to do this and take the seat in the temple, there has to be a temple. That means the temple is going to be rebuilt. Is that what it says? I don't see it there, but it says that he'll take a seat in the temple. So, but if I go ahead and assume there's going to be a temple rebuilt, I can know that right now the Dome of the Rock of Islam is sitting right on the hill in, in Israel, where they're fighting over the territory, because in Islam, where the Dome of the Rock is, that, that's uh, significant to Muhammad, their prophet, Right? Where the temple was and yet the Jews want it because that's significant to them because that's where the temple's supposed to be so they're always at conflict over this and so we can see that back and forth going on and, and know that hey maybe there is a possibility that maybe uh, Israel takes over that territory builds a temple we don't know we just don't know are there other ways to understand the man of lawlessness well I think there are There are other theories out there. I've got, um, well, I read in in the book of Proverbs, the adulteress. Good thing she died in Solomon's time because that lady sounds scary. What does that mean? The adulteress. Is that one woman? No, it's the woman that practices adultery. The murderer, Job talks about. The murderer gets up in the morning and, and he plots to take people's lives. I'm glad he's gone. He's not gone, is he? No. Is it one? A plain reading would say that this is one, but I also could understand it to mean that there's something arising, a lawlessness in mankind. I can look around at mankind right now and go, it's definitely getting lawless. What about the temple? There are other ways to think about the temple, aren't there? If I'm the temple, here's one of, here's one of the other theories out there. This, this man of lawlessness takes his seat in the temple and proclaims himself to be God. I, I tease about this frequently in other messages, don't I, a little bit. We put ourselves on the throne of our own lives and make ourselves God. We're a law unto ourselves. My truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. And so my, I'm my own little God with my own little world that I reign in. And I exalt myself against every known God. God. This is one of the things about humanism that I find very interesting. I mean, it's it's one thing to be an idolater and worship a false god. That's evil in God's sight, right? But what about becoming so arrogant as to say, no, there is no God. I'm God. I'm the all-powerful, almighty. I decide. I'm the truth-bearer. There is no law that governs me. There's no outside power. That's what law is, right? It's something outside of us that creates boundaries. So when we're interacting with our fellow man, we understand and respect those lines. And they're dictated to us by an outside authority. But we have a rising power in the world that says there is no authority but mine. My truth is mine. Nope. you don't decide my gender. You don't decide my sexuality. You don't decide what I do with my life. I'm master of my own destiny. I'm God. You want to talk about abomination? I think there's some powerful arguments in there about it. So there's thinking in there. I don't know for certain. Is it still possible that one man of lawlessness will come on the scene? All powerful? Possibly. Let's keep reading. I'm going to go over time today. I'm sorry. I apologize ahead of time. But I can't do this in two weeks. I've got to do it today. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I'm continuing to read out of 2 Thessalonians, this would be one of the main passages in which you would look at to begin to understand the situation. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery, can we all just agree it's a mystery? The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Okay? So whatever this is, is more than just a man, one individual man. It's a mystery, it's a spirit, as we'll look at later. Something that has been at work through the ages, could it culminate in one man? Possibly. And many people believe that. Only, the, only, only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Many believe that's the Holy Spirit. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing at the appearance of his coming. I found myself really thinking on this. How many things are going to die when Jesus appears? If you stop and think about this, if I've went ahead and made myself God, we'll continue with the humanist idea here for a minute. If I make myself God and I see Jesus returning, guess who suddenly realizes he ain't God anymore? And the man of lawlessness dies right there. Or how many religions will suddenly just... Now, we do know Jesus was here. He raised the dead and people still didn't believe in him. So who knows if there will be people that still won't believe when he returns. But it says that Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth. And I'm like, is this literally true? Is Jesus going to come down and say something and the guy melts, you know, like the wicked witch of the West? I don't know. But what I know about Jesus is that sharp, double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth that we see in Revelation, which is the word of God is truth. And when truth comes, lies die. So whatever that looks like, I don't know. Could be more metaphorical, could be quite literal. What do I draw out of this? Fear of an Antichrist? Fear of a man of lawlessness? No. Just a solid, settled hope in Jesus Christ. He will come for his people. Regardless of how it goes down, the coming of the lawless one will be the activity of Satan. So, who's behind it? Satan. With all power, false signs, wonders, and with all wicked deception, massive deception at work for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, I'm looking around and and I don't know, I'm I'm just, I'm guessing, I'm, I'm speculating, I'm looking at the world around me and I can say, yes, the scripture is true, lawlessness is continues to increase. Mankind continues to rebel against God and exalt him. No longer is it as much about false religions. This is more and more becoming because of science and knowledge and whatever. I'm my own God. That's continuing to grow. And I'm like, ugh. so that at least that much of it is true. And when he returns, those things will be laid low. Pleasure in unrighteousness Don't we do that? We make excuses for ourselves so we can please ourselves even when we know it's not right to God. And so we understand according to these scriptures, what can we draw out of here as truth? And what do we look at and understand? It's mysterious. We'll keep seeking it out. We'll keep trying to understand it. But can I find a hill to die on about the Antichrist in here? I don't think so. I don't think so. Let's look at 1 John there are four passages of Scripture we're going to cover that talk about this. A couple of them briefly, but the main ones come out of Thessalonians, which we were just talking about, and the other is the letter from John. Now, let's just talk about John for a second. John is an apostle of Jesus. He's also the author of the Gospel of John. He's also the author of the book of Revelation. He's the one who has this amazing revelation. Now, I told you last week that they tried to kill John. They they tried to boil him in oil. Um, I'm trying to think of. I think it was Nero. It might have been the emperor right before him, but they throw him in the oil and he doesn't die. So who's telling the story? A man named Tertullian. And if you know who Tertullian was, he is a father of the church. There's a lot of writings and stuff like this that we look back on historically as accurate from the first and second centuries in those times. Uh, so he's a reliable source. And he says that, that the emperor had John thrown in oil and boiled and everyone else pretty much dies instantly. John didn't die. He wasn't even hurt. They pull him out, look at him, he's not dead yet, so they dip him back in the oil a second time. He still doesn't die, he's completely uninjured. Rome came up with some great ways to torture people. I mean, my goodness. And they pull John out again, and he can't die, so so the emperor's like, forget it, we can't kill this guy, banish him to Patmos. And it's on the island of Patmos that John has this vision, the book of Revelation that we have today. So John's well-versed in this stuff. And he writes in his letter 1 John These five times I think that we see The actual word Antichrist used in the scripture Verse 2 verse 18 Children in the last hour As you have heard that Antichrist is coming So now many Antichrists have come So John is saying You guys have heard that the Antichrist will come Many have come And then he makes this conclusion Therefore we know that it is the last hour 2,000 years ago was the last hour. We're still in the last hour. See, they understood that they were in the end times. Now, when we say end times, we think of a very short window. But the scripture very clearly talks about the end times from the time of the apostles till the return of Christ which has been going on for 2,000 years and has caused many to question whether or not Christ will return. This is why we have to have this fundamental understanding from the scripture that Christ does return if it takes 10,000 years. He will accomplish his purposes. Those are the kind of truths we can draw from the scripture as absolute fact and put our hope in. But John is saying, okay, you've heard that this antichrist is coming. I don't know where they heard it. We don't have record of that. Maybe they're referring to the man of lawlessness. I'm not sure. Seems like a logical conclusion to me. Many have come. So in John's mind, can we say there is one and can we say there is many? Yes, both. He kind of leaves the door open for this possibility that maybe there is yet one, but certainly many have already come. And you're talking first century. And I teased a little bit earlier. Many have come. Claiming to be Christ or having the power of Christ. Many that would lead astray. Antichrist, against Christ, in place of Christ. Over and over and over throughout history. I mean, you, you can go back in the ancient writings. You've got... Uh, just you, We're going to look at the Roman emperors and stuff in Revelation next week when we talk about the mark of the beast and that kind of stuff. But they, the first century church, absolutely, the Roman emperors were the Antichrist. During the Reformation, the, for the Protestants, the Pope was the Antichrist. And for the, for the Catholics, the Protestants were the Antichrist. Right? And they killed each other, millions. Protestants and Catholics killed each other by the millions in the, 15th and six, in the 1500s and the 1600s. Seems awfully Christ like to me. Not, huh? No wonder. Accusation after accusation, generation after generation, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Mao, over and over and over. He's the Antichrist, he's the Antichrist, they're the Antichrist, that's the Antichrist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just kind of want to go, okay, we can see from this passage, John, that many against Christs will come. But let's read some more what John has to say because he gives us some wisdom. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. How many do not confess the coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh? John says they're the Antichrist. How many is that? Many. There's certainly a plurality we have to wrestle with here when determining what we think about the Antichrist. So there's certainly at least a spiritual impetus against Jesus and that would be labeled an antichrist. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist who does not confess Jesus is God. Many, many are opposed to Jesus. What you heard was, I'm sorry, what you heard was coming and now is in the world already. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So you can get a picture of what in John's mind was the Antichrist. It's all of this movement, it's all of this people, it's all of this lawlessness, I think from Paul's angle, against Christ, against the resurrection, opposing. I don't, if I'm just honest here, I don't see a lot of convincing evidence of one world-ruling, world-uniting power yet that could be called the Antichrist that we need to be afraid of. Here's the other thing about the Antichrist. It's fed a lot of things in Hollywood. There are movies and stuff out there where the Antichrist is born and they take him out before he really comes to power and yay. But that's not scriptural. Here's another thing to think about. I'll, this is just, I'm just messing with you now here for a second. Can Satan cause a child to be born? I don't know. <laughs> Never thought about it. Is he just waiting around for the right person to be born and he's just checking them all? Waiting for someone who will perfectly be the, or is, is God sovereign? Huh. If you have an answer to that, you let me know. I don't know. What am, I, what am I? I'm not trying to make fun exactly, but really, really emphasize that we are foolish to be arrogant if we think we're right. Foolish. We remain humble. We remain open. We hold it like this and go, God, teach me. As these things come about, if they haven't already happened, help me understand. Help me know how to stay grounded and navigate. Let me ask you another question. This is for the Because I'm pushing it back against the fanatical a little bit. Because I don't necessarily think it's healthy to be really weirdly fanatical about these things. If you knew who the Antichrist was, what would you do about it? Anything different than you are today? Then something's wrong. Our mission is the same as it has always been to be God's people on the earth, to preach the good news, to reach people, to serve people, to honor Him. That's how we win, by bringing people to Christ, by teaching them the good news so they can find forgiveness for their sins and eternal life and peace in this life now. Even if you knew who he was, what are you going to do? You're going to stop him? If it is really one man who's going to unite the world under one power, are you going to stop him? Only if you can stop God, because this is God it's his plan. This is how time culminates. If you buy into that angle of it, I'm just thinking, man, we got to be wise about this because the world looks at the church and goes, are they credible? Can I trust them? Are they helpful? Are they hopeful? Do they really have good news? Do they really care about me? And when every other year someone new is being accused of being a devil, they don't want to be a part of that. And when we've been proven wrong 10,000 times at least, what does that do to credibility? I don't know, man. I, I just find myself struggling with this and rethinking it. I think it's important that we be Bereans, go back to the scripture and go, okay, what's reasonable here? What can I say for certain? And am I okay guessing? Yeah, that's okay. Just don't kill anybody over it. You know? Grounded. Wise. Let's be that. John saw that he was in the last hour. Okay. I'm going to hit a couple of other passages here. uh, Just to encourage you to dig further or read further. Uh the other would be Revelation chapter thirteen. I'm going to read through this entire passage fairly quickly. So we know that about this man of lawlessness, according to Paul, or or and and a lawlessness both, and we know that there's an antichrist and many antichrists according to John. And so then we we turn to the book of Revelation chapter thirteen verse one, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Remember, John. It says, John. He says, Come up and Early on in the book of Revelation, come up and I'll show you things that are to come. So uh, John's in the spirit. He's seeing all kinds of things in the spirit. Very fantastic things. And we would look at them and know that it's a prophetic vision. He's seeing something that has relevance on truth. And so we look at that and we're always trying to analyze it because we're trying to mine. It's like a riddle, trying to mine out of it what the reality of it is. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, which are crowns, diadems are crowns, on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Okay, we could read this literally and say, well, at the end, a beast is going to come out of the sea. Probably not. This is meant to be an analogy or a metaphor of something else in our natural reality. And we actually see this in the book of Daniel, which we will look at in a minute, which um, serves as a foundation for how we understand it. There were ten royal crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. The beast I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon, who we know is Satan, because John makes that clear, gave his power and his throne great authority. Next slide. And of One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, and its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, next slide, and they worshipped the dragon. So they're worshipping Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it, next slide, and the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens his mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. All, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, even those, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in, what, wait, when? Before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Go ahead. Or is that it? Good. So, over the years, people are reading this vision that John has about this beast, and they're connecting it with his idea of the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist. So, how many of you have heard of the beast? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, this would be some of what fuels the understanding about this idea of Antichrist and lawlessness. So that's why you will hear Christians talking about, well, it's, it's the beast. And then we get into the mark of the beast next week and those kind of things. The other passage is Daniel chapter uh, 7, which I will cover a couple passages here. After this, as I watched the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in broken pieces and stamped what was left with his feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before. and It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one. So, basically, to give you the brief cliff notes version here, Daniel has a vision of four beasts, and and it's shown. The angel explains to him later. You've got four kingdoms that rise, and most uh, biblical scholars would agree this is fulfilled in you know four nations that rise that that are a part of Israel's future from Daniel's point. You've got first, you've got the Babylonians. Then you have the Persians or the Medo-Persians. Then you have the Greeks. And then you have this fourth unusual beast, which is Rome, represents Rome. And Rome ruled, Rome's kingdom, kingdom, then republic, then empire was a thousand years. You're talking like 500 years before Christ to 500 years after. And so we had prophetic things about Rome even before Rome came to power through the book of Daniel. And there's, there's lots of connections here we could dig into about you know, the heads and the kings and the crowns, but it's this little one. So guys will read through the book of Daniel and they'll run across this little one and they, it doesn't fit necessarily in anything. And so, you know, in, in biblical prophecy, sometimes you'll, mid-sentence, it'll shift from one time frame to another, which we know that happens because Jesus did that. So some people believe that that little, that first horn, that little one, represents a king based out of this Roman empire at the end of time. Fast forward past, Way down the road. It takes a lot to connect all these things. Do you see what I'm saying? But these would be the four major passages uh, that people would refer to when talking about the Antichrist. I'm also going to read chapter, uh, verses 23 and 25. This is what he said. Let's go to the next one. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, speaking of the little horn, and shall put down three kings. Okay, there would be, he speaks words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law. Connecting that idea to lawlessness, people would do that in order to make them the same. And they shall be given into his hand for a time's time and half a time, which some people translate three and a half years so why am i showing you all this uh just to show you that the there are these passages that people will lean on in order to debate what the antichrist is but i would and i would encourage you be a berean with this subject don't just assume everything you grow up learning or everything you've ever heard or every internet website you went to listen i looked at a lot of websites this week I mean, my head was spinning with how much stuff. You go ahead and Google Antichrist, you'll get like 10 million results. And it's it's fun if we're not uptight about it. It's curious. We're learning. But so many times I would read and say, uh, the man of lawlessness is the Antichrist, is the beast. Assumed, first sentence, done. And I just go, eh, you're going to have to do more than that. To prove it, be a Brian. Can you logically do that? Sure, you can. you can. You can connect certain things and maybe, but be careful. There are a lot of things we know is absolutely true according to Scripture, like Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins, that God made the world, you know, God made covenant with Abraham. Those things are not debatable. But when we're trying to analyze and speculate and guess what the end of time looks like, or how it will flow and go. We must do so with wisdom and caution. And even if we did know in every bit of detail. What would we do with it? This is an issue of the human heart. It's an issue of our mission and fulfilling our mission. You know when that I, joke, I joked with you about the 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Remember that book? Who read the book? Any? Any takers? A few of us? Am I the only one? 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. And obviously, we joke now because it didn't happen. But people were selling their homes and quitting their jobs to spend more time with their family because Jesus was about to return. There was actual action being taken place because of this kind of teaching, this information. But I think, as God's children, we're called to be wise. We're called to be steady in the storm. And I want to conclude reminding you again of what I did out of Ephesians chapter four, verses 14 and 15. Why are we taught these things? Why do we have gifted leaders in our lives? Paul goes on to say, so that we may no longer be children. We are on a journey towards maturity, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen in our city. We don't know what's going to happen in our family. We don't know what's going to happen in the United States of America. We don't know what the world will turn into. We don't know what's going to be the outcome of the war in Ukraine. We don't know these things. We can't speak factually of them. But we do and can speak factually that maturity drives us to a place of being steady and not swayed by every wind and wave that sweeps through. Because there are much, much greater things at stake in our relationship with Christ and the mission of the church. Would you please stand? If I aggravated you today, I apologize. It was a little different message today. If you're a guest, come back in three, when I get back from South Africa. But I just think we have to talk about it because people are getting really weird. People are getting tense. People are getting anxious. I know you're not getting weird. Just me. But isn't it? You look around the world and you go, it's losing its mind. The world is losing its mind. And then we go, okay, deep breath. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. We have truth. We can navigate. Even if, even if the, that, the theory comes to pass that one world unites under the power of an Antichrist and he persecutes the Christians to death, we still know the end. We still know what happens. No fear. Remember the 1990s, there were t-shirts, no fear. They were cool when I was in school. <laughs> we ought to be wearing them, no fear. But not about local little conspiracy theory ideas. No fear, big picture. No worries, all right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your prophetic words in scripture that teach us about you coming and returning and giving us signs, Glimpses Mysterious things we don't completely understand But we know you have purpose in them Because they're in your word And so we examine them and we wonder And we seek you Lord make us wise Help us to be a wise people With what you've given us Help us to navigate well Help us to be an example To the world around us Showing your love and your light Showing your goodness And your grace God, I pray for all the saints here today. God, that you would be encouraging and strengthening. God, that you would be transforming hearts, that you'd be comforting the hurting, that you'd be healing the suffering. God, you've been healing lately. We've been hearing stories. God, I pray for the cancer in the room right now, that you would bring healing. God, I pray for the the surgeries coming up and that are happening, that, that your hand would be with doctors and nurses. God, that you would be bringing about powerful healing in people's bodies. God, that you would be bringing about wisdom and knowledge as we deal with the issues of life. Thank you for your power amongst us. Thank you for leading us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I'm sorry I pushed it a little bit today. So you're gonna wanna go check your kids out of Children's Church right away and thank those workers for sacrificing a little extra time today. We'll see you next week.